electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Eamon Javers in tonight for Brian Sullivan right now on Last Call. The two numbers that could make or break the 2024 presidential election, and they have got nothing to do with jobs. If you build it, will they come? The construction industry takes a big bet to find new workers, and the wait may almost maybe finally be over for approval of a Bitcoin ETF. We've got late-breaking developments tonight. Wall Street's golden candidate Nikki Haley prepares to rake it in from some of the industry's biggest names. And see what's next. Netflix reportedly looks to a major pivot for its business. Will the other big tech names have to follow? And speaking of Netflix, its next must-see crime documentary debuts with one of the craziest financial fraud stories you will ever hear. The director of the new film will reveal the big players in the story. All that and more coming up over the next hour. Last Call is up and live from Washington right now. Good evening here and good afternoon out west. We'll have all of that and more coming up this hour. But first up on Last Call, the record run is officially over. Despite ending the day higher, the major indices snapped their nine-week win streaks tonight. The Dow dropped more than a half a percent in the first week of 2024. The S&P 500 fell more than 1.5 percent, ending its best weekly run since 2004. But the biggest loser was the Nasdaq. The index posted its worst week in more than three months. The pullback comes after a choppy week in the bond market. The 10-year Treasury yield climbing above 4%. That's its highest level since mid-December. That helping triggering a clobbering for tech stocks today. In fact, tech was the worst performing sector in the S&P 500 this entire week. Even the MAG-7 looked more like the lag seven. See what we did there. In total, the big tech stocks lost more than $407 billion in value this week. For context, that is more than the entire market cap of ExxonMobil itself. The biggest drag on the MAG-7 was Apple. It posted its worst week since September following several downgrades on the street. We'll talk about that later. It also fell after the New York Times reported that the Justice Department is moving towards an antitrust lawsuit against the iPhone maker. All that said, it is a rocky start to 2024. So can the bulls shake off the New Year blues or are investors set for more pain ahead? Well, let's talk about that with our leadoff panel. Carson Group Chief Market Strategist Ryan Detrick and Laffer Tengler Investment CEO and CIO Nancy Tengler. Thank you guys both for joining Last Call tonight. Ryan, let's start with you. Explain to me how last month's Santa Claus rally turned into this New Year's hangover we're dealing with this week. Yeah, I guess stocks can go down, right? Like, like you just talked about nine weeks. Yeah, I guess so. Who knew? Uh, you know, a nine-week win streak is over. I, I took a look at that. What does that mean, right? Like we said, long, longest is 2004. One month later, 
the S&P has been higher eight out of nine times after that nine-week win streak. Okay, so just think about that. Then also, when you have a nine-week win streak, a year later, the median returns of over 12% on average. So those are just some context around this. But listen, the bottom line is this. We know we had a huge rally to end the year. Yes, we did. We got a little coal from Santa because the Santa Claus rally didn't take place. We've seen some bear markets historically when that doesn't happen. I think simply it's a market really catching its breath. You mentioned, obviously, tech and Apple getting the downgrades. Yes, that's pulling back a little bit. But we're still overall encouraged. This big theme next year, my final comment here, is just the broadening out, right? Small caps and mid caps, there's no recession likely coming, in our opinion. The Fed is done. We know all these things. But we think it's just as this bull market ages, we're going to get more participation than just seven stocks. Like we never believed that last year, to be honest, but we heard that a lot. And we think there's gonna be a lot more stocks participating before this year is all said and done. Nancy, what's your take? Is this just profit taking and breathtaking here? Or is there some teeth gritting and looking ahead at maybe a tougher year than we thought? Amy, I mean, good to be on with you and Ryan. Thanks so much for having me. I think um, you have to kind of step back and say, what what is um, where are we from an economic standpoint? And I think all the uh, alignment, and we've written about this extensively, is that this market is more analogous to the 1990s than probably any other period. We got the jolts numbers this week. There's a labor shortage historically. When there's labor shortage, companies spend on technology, productivity goes up. So even with higher average hourly earnings. Uh, that we saw. Um, I, I think that you want to be long this market and you don't want to give up on technology. So use the weakness to add to holdings in that group. And then, yes, of course, the, the market is broadening and we all own more than just technology. But I think that um, the the death of that trade is is much overdone. Mm-hmm. And we, we have continued to add to names in periods like this. We added in October of 2022. We added in October of this year. And, and I think investors want to use weakness and volatility, which is the friend of the long-term investor, to add to some of these names in here and, and across, across the spectrum. Last thing I will say is that our investing theme has been old economy companies that have pivoted to digitization, uh, generative AI, and cloud computing, and then the suppliers of those picks and shovels. We think that theme survives for a few more years. And so look for great companies that are pivoting to the digital revolution. And I think you'll be happy that you added to those names. Nancy, you say it'll look like the 1990s. I'm old enough to remember the 1990s. They were pretty good, right? I mean, so that's encouraging. Uh, But Ryan, talk to me about the Fed. We've been talking about this on CNBC all day long, right? I mean, we saw the jobs number this morning, stronger than expected. A lot of speculation on Wall Street of whether that shakes investors' confidence in this idea that the Fed's going to have three to six rate hikes throughout this year, depending on your number. Everyone thinks, uh, or sorry, rate cuts, rather. Everyone thinks the Fed's going to start cutting this year, and that's a good thing. That's what's been driving this whole rally. That's sort of the... The thing that the foundations are shaking on is that assumption today. Where do you come down on it? Now, good point there. I mean, listen, the market's almost saying five to six cuts. Right? <laughs> we think it's going to be more like three to four cuts. So we're not so sure they're going to cut early this year, maybe by the middle of the year. And honestly, why? Because the economy is still strong. I mean, look at today, right? The jobs number came in a little bit better. Uh, you know, we're like 165,000 jobs on average the last three months. Remember 2019? Things weren't all that bad. We averaged 163,000 jobs per month back then. So just think about that. But I want to point out something Nancy just mentioned. Music to my ears. The mid-90s. Productivity is the key to this whole thing, in our opinion. We've had two quarters in a row of really strong
strong productivity. With 5 million jobs hired a couple years ago, 2.7 million jobs last year, people are staying where they are. They're happy where they are. AI, all these new technologies are coming. We think we are on the cusp of major productivity in our country. Again, haven't seen it since when? The mid-90s. Real quickly, the mid-90s. What happened? Alan Greenspan saw that. He cut interest rates in 95. Inflation was not a problem. Oh, by the way, wages stayed high, and you didn't have inflation because you had higher productivity. So if higher productivity is here, uh, we're, we're pretty bullish, and we think productivity is the key, and that that could be um, a pretty, pre, pretty good run, is our opinion, uh, for the economy so, and stocks going forward. So boy bands and stock rallies. Nancy, yeah. uh, real quick last comment from you. I mean, are we now back to an era where good news is good news? I think so, Eamon. I mean, let's let's just take that 90s analogy a little farther. Uh, inflation <laughs> was above 3% on average for the decade. Interest rates were 5 to 7 So stock appreciation can coexist with higher interest rates. We did have an inverted yield curve. Uh, the hero, Alan Greenspan, did cut. And then the market, uh, we had a soft landing, and the market yep. was up 20% a year later. So I think there's yep. some good news in here. Just use weakness to add to your holdings. Nancy, I would end this with some kind of boy band play on words here, but I was far too cool in the 90s to actually listen to the boy bands, so we will leave it there. Ryan and Nancy, thank you very much. Uh, meanwhile, let's take a look at what happened inside the market this week. Here's your studs and duds segment. All big pharma on the stud side of the equation. Moderna up 11.9% after an Oppenheimer upgrade, and a note that said more products are on their way. Viatris up 10.7%, and Merck 7.5%, also jumping on Wall Street. Just general optimism around this pharmaceutical space. The biggest duds of the week, solar company Enphase Energy down 12.6%, keeps dropping as a longtime bull dropped his buy rating on the stock. Norwegian Cruise Line down 11.3% after Carnival was named a top pick by Wells Fargo. Norwegian was not. And NXP Semiconductors down 10.4% rounding out the bottom three there. Coming up here, forget the jobs report. These are the two numbers that could tip the outcome of the 2024 election. We'll break them down. That's coming up. Plus, the final, final, final stretch for the approval of a Bitcoin ETF may or may not or maybe be here. The fast-moving developments are coming up next. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Methane management is a critical part of achieving a lower carbon future. Chevron is taking action to keep methane in the pipe. Their 2028 upstream methane intensity target is set to be 53% below the 2016 baseline. They're committed to evolving facility designs and operating practices. And they've trialed over 13 advanced detection technologies, including drones and satellites. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com methane.
And let's get right to tomorrow's news to tonight. Some of the stories you and Wall Street will be talking about tomorrow. First up, the U.S. Supreme Court will now decide whether Donald Trump should be disqualified from Colorado's primary ballot. Last month, the Colorado Supreme Court ruled he should be taking off of it. They say Trump's actions around the January 6th attack on the Capitol deem him ineligible because he engaged in an insurrection. Trump's attorneys appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court to reverse that ruling. The, ruling. the case will hear oral arguments on February 8th. Next up, a happy Friday to Dallas Mavericks employees. Mark Cuban, who recently sold his majority stake in the Mavs to casino magnate Miriam Adelson, said as a thank you for all their hard work, employees would be getting bonuses totaling $35 million. That's according to an email obtained by ESPN's Tim McMahon. The bonuses will be calculated based on tenure of employment, presumably not $35 million each. Cuban sold his stake for $3.5 billion last month. And finally, as the crypto world awaits the SEC's spot Bitcoin ETF decision, there are a number of fast-moving developments that are happening this evening. CNBC's Kate Rooney joins me now to break it all down. Kate, What's going on right now and what does it mean for Bitcoin investors who've been chomping at the bit on this thing for a while now? Yeah, Eamon, well said. Chomping at the bit. Absolutely. Investors have been waiting for a decision on this backlog of Bitcoin ETF applications. We are starting to get some updated paperwork around some of those, including one this evening from the New York Stock Exchange. Bloomberg reporting today that SEC commissioners plan to vote on these ETF filings next week and have cleared at least one of these hurdles. There's been some back and forth on when that will happen. There are two types of hurdles, though, here. Eamon, the SEC needs to approve the S-1s, which are from the applicants, and then these separate filings for exchanges known as 19B4s, which is what you got there from the New York Stock Exchange, submitted tonight. Both need the green light before any of these ETFs can actually start trading. The SEC has a deadline of next Wednesday to approve or deny the ARC 21 shares application. They are among the 13 firms now vying for an ETF to track the underlying price of Bitcoin. So this would allow investors to hold crypto in their brokerage accounts or retirement accounts, for example. Some are arguing that may widen the audience of Bitcoin buyers. Bitcoin's price has shot up in anticipation of this ETF approval. That is leaving some wondering, could this be what's known in the hedge fund world as buy the rumor, sell the news? Fundstrat looked into the possibility of that, looking at Bitcoin CME futures and that launched back in 2017 and then the Bitcoin futures ETF in 2021, which came at the last peak of that last cycle. Bitcoin dropped in the wake of both of those listings and as Fundstrat put it, the upcoming launch may also be followed by a significant drawdown. But Fundstrat also says this time is categorically different. They say those launches coincided with turning points in global liquidity as well. CME for example, in a downturn of the dollar, and then the futures ETF I mentioned was just ahead of the Fed's historic rate hikes. Either way, some of the biggest winners aiming in this ETF application could actually be the Wall Street heavy hitters working on the back end. You've got JP Morgan and Jane Street, as well as Cantor Fitzgerald among those listed as what they call authorized participants. A source telling me Goldman Sachs is also in talks to work on Grayscale's potential ETF. So these firms are going to be in charge of creations and redemptions of shares they make sure the price of the ETF is actually going to track the underlying price of Bitcoin. They typically profit, and the trading desks can make money on potential arbitrage opportunities, which tend to be a lot more lucrative with more volatile assets like Bitcoin. You also got fees. The terms are not disclosed, but their success is really going to depend on some of the inflows and popularity of these funds 
if they're approved, Damon. Back over to you. Kate, thanks. Let's bring in an expert on this story, Jay Clayton. He's a former SEC chairman and a CNBC contributor. Jay, I wanted to talk to you about this tonight because there's just so much money riding on this decision today. You heard Kate talking about it. Bitcoin prices have run up in anticipation of a decision from the SEC. What I want to know from you is, do regulators feel that kind of massive market pressure in the final days of making a call like this? Uh, well, Ivan, thanks for having me on. And look, I want to I want to take my hat off to Kate. She she summarized uh, where we stand in, in incredibly well. So, uh, well done. And and to your question, um, do you think about things like an introduction of a new product, or in this case, um, you know, perhaps as many as thirteen new products, and what that will do to trading? Well, well, of course you do. And I think that you know we're looking at a possible approval here. I think next week. You know, makes a lot of sense from a market dynamics point of view because people are back and more people are back working. And if you're introducing a new product where there's going to be cross currents and Kate outlined some of the cross currents, it's good to have everybody back in their seats. So it seems like there's kind of short term pressure on the SEC in terms of the, the huge run up in Bitcoin and the idea that if they don't approve this now, after all this expectation, a lot of people are going to lose their shirts in, in the Bitcoin markets. But there's also this sort of long term concern about investor protection, right? Because if you talk about people investing their retirement funds now in a Bitcoin ETF and Bitcoin has been such a wildly volatile item uh, out there, you, you, these huge epic swings that you don't see in other asset classes, you talk about people maybe losing their retirement funds in the long run. So how do you balance those two things as the SEC looking at this, you know, on a Friday night in early January? Well, Layman, let me let me talk about the SEC's role here. And what I would say is the three things the SEC felt that they had to get right before they approve it. And, you know, approval is not certain, but I've said that you know, approval this week is not certain, but I believe approval eventually is inevitable. It feels uh, like it's they have to get right. right? They, they, yeah, it's coming. Yeah. They, the disclosure has to be right, okay, so that people understand what they're buying. The second thing is the underlying trading market has to be efficacious. It has to be of of a quality that manipulation, the type of um, you know just bad behavior that you don't want to see in an underlying trading market is eliminated or at an acceptable minimum. Um, and then lastly, and this is very important here with with a digital asset, the pipes have to work. The product itself, the custody, the create, the redemption. Kate talked about authorized participants and the arbitrage and, and how this product actually functions. That has to work. So the SEC has to have gotten comfortable that all those things are, are going to function as they should. Um, and I've said many times when I was chair of the SEC, I was concerned about that underlying Bitcoin trading market. So um, yeah. you know, I think we've gotten past that. On your question about investors, I rarely give investment advice. I don't know whether Bitcoin's going to be worth a lot or a little. I will say this. This is a speculative, volatile asset. No good investment advisor or broker-dealer would tell you to put a substantial portion of your investment assets into a single volatile or speculative asset. You what say that. Jay, I'm sorry to interrupt. You say that, but somebody will, right? I mean, somebody out there in the financial advisory world will say, you know what? You want to make some money in your retirement funds? Get into this. It's, it's going to expand. And somebody's going to lose their shirt, right? I mean, that's just the nature well, Eamon, of, of Eamon, Eamon, let me just say this. I, I, I would hope that no broker, dealer, or investment advisor registered with the SEC would tell somebody to put all their chips in the Bitcoin basket. Don't put all your eggs 
in one basket. Always good financial advice. Jake Layton, thanks so much for your insight and expertise. Really appreciate it tonight. And still ahead here, the construction industry turns to a most unusual place in its struggle to find workers. Plus, how the outcome of the 2024 election could come down to just two numbers tied very closely to your money. Don't go anywhere. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. And welcome back to Last Call. After today's jobs number, Americans may be feeling pretty, pretty good about the labor market, but one industry still having a hard time filling open jobs. That's construction. CNBC's Kate Rogers joins us now with more. Hey there, Kate. Hey, Eamon. Well, you said it. Help is certainly wanted in the construction industry where job openings stood at just under half a million as of the end of November. That's according to Jolt's analysis by Associated Builders and Contractors. That trade group says the number is up by more than 100,000 from the same time last year. Group expects that will also pick up over the course of this next year as funding hits the, the street from three major areas, the CHIPS Act, the Inflation Reduction Act, and the Bipartisan Infrastructure Deal. It's hundreds of billions of dollars over the next four or five years is going to be coming out and uh, and, and that's going to have a big impact on um, skilled labor and the shortage we're facing right now. As with many of the trades, of course, it is skilled workers that are needed and recruitment techniques around that need to change. At South San Francisco High School, for example, a course that was designed as a traditional wood shop elective has now been transformed into a two-year trades course for the construction industry. Really going from building a birdhouse to learning how to, you know, form walls, uh, you know, put, you know, roofs on buildings. So, um, it was really out of just understanding what is it that students will need to be competitive in the in the work environment and what can we do to help support them get there. Um, we really focus on trying to ensure not just that students are prepared for college, but also a career. And that's really at the heart of the issue here is that there just are not enough workers being recruited at younger ages to come in and fill that talent pipeline as so many baby boomers retire, Eamon, and there's just no one to take their place. Back over to so, you. Kate, you're talking construction here, but are we seeing the same problem and maybe some of the same solutions over in the manufacturing space? We certainly are, and there's no way around it, right? A lot of these uh, federal construction investments in particular are going to lead to manufacturing job <clears throat> openings, particularly as you look at both uh, solar and chips funding, right? And there has long been a talent issue in the manufacturing sector. And when you talk to the National Association of Manufacturers, they've also pegged the number at around half a million job openings in terms of a skilled labor shortage. And about two years ago or so, they told me they were going even further uh, and trying to talk to kids as young as middle school and going to career fairs wow. and things like that to 
let them know that this is an option and that these jobs can pay quite well without a bachelor's degree. Rather, for example, in the construction sector, you can be making $30, $40 an hour in some of these positions. So kids can go right from high school into these trades and have a pretty competitive wage to start. And without all that college debt, Kate Rogers, thank you so much. And staying and on the subject of that. jobs, <laughs> staying on the subject of jobs here, the December jobs report was released earlier today. It's the first jobs report of this presidential election year, and the numbers were much better than expected. 216,000 jobs added last month compared to estimates of just 170,000. So that should be very good news for an incumbent president. But President Biden is still lagging behind in a number of key 2024 polls, and his approval rating has dipped in recent months. But I think there are two other economic numbers that are gonna play a bigger role in determining the president's political fate. Inflation, which has come down since the start of his administration, and the 30-year fixed mortgage rate, which has also come down recently as well, but, have they come down enough to save the Biden campaign? After all, prices and mortgage rates still feel pretty high for voters. So joining me now, economic analyst and columnist at the American Enterprise Institute, also a CNBC contributor and author of the conservative futurist James Pethokoukis and former North, Carol uh, North Dakota senator, University of Georgia, Chicago Institute of Politics director and CNBC contributor. You guys have so many titles. Oh. Heidi Heitkamp, Senator, well, let's start with you uh, because you've actually been on the ballot here. Do you agree with me on this idea that inflation and mortgage rates will play a bigger role this year than jobs, which are now high and, and pretty likely to stay high? I absolutely agree. When you think about jobs, think about the fact that a lot of people have jobs. They know they can get a job, and a lot of them are working two jobs. The question is, are they making enough to make ends meet? And what they're basically telling us through these numbers is they don't feel financially secure, even though they feel secure in employment. And so it's the cost of living that we have to focus on. Yes, it's coming down, but the misery index is the is the piece. Everybody wants to measure GDP and jobs. Guess what? What people look at is what's in your checking account at the end of the month or at the yeah. end of the week. And that's how the economy feels to voters. And they blame the president, you know, rightly or wrongly. We can debate whether presidents deserve credit or, or get too much blame for that. They But they definitely blame whoever's the president at the ballot box. Jimmy P., let me ask you this question uh, here in D.C. If you were if I gave you as the Biden campaign a magic wand and you could fix one of those three numbers, you could fix inflation, you could fix in, uh, mortgage rates or you could fix the jobs number. Which one would you fix? That's the problem. Because I, I guess I would fix. You're ducking it. the question. I'm, I'm going to answer the question. Answer the question. I'm, <laughs> don't okay. wait for the translation. Answer okay. the question. Yes. Uh, I would. I would fix inflation. But the problem is inflation. lowering the lower, slowing inflation down. Disinflation isn't enough. And I think you referred to it in your intro. The level of prices is still very high. People remember right. when they were a lot lower, and just uh, just inflation just a being slower. Years ago. Is not, is not going to affect that. Right. And you only usually get deflation with recessions or depressions. So it's unlikely we're going to get deflation. So to a lot of people, those prices are going to seem super high, even if they're not going up very fast anymore. Senator, do you agree with that? I mean, the, the Biden campaign likes to talk about the idea that inflation is coming down. That's right. The rate of price increases is coming down, but prices themselves are high and going higher and feel a lot higher than they were and are a lot higher than they were a couple of years ago. So same question to you, Senator. If you had a magic wand, you were on the Biden campaign, you could fix one of those three numbers, mortgages, inflation, or jobs, which one would you fix? I fix the interest rates, and I think we're going to see rates. the Fed 
basically pull back. And part of that is because when people look at, can I afford a car? They aren't buying a car with cash. Can I afford homes? They know that that, in, that interest rate affects their ability to get housing. And so I think that, yes, you can't really fix inflation. Um, so I think it's a lot easier to fix interest rates and that's gonna be left up to the Fed. And there's gonna be a lot of discussion about whether yeah. the if the Fed lowers rates, whether that's a political move or whether that's an economic move. Oh, you can just, you can hear the criticism now, right? I mean, the Fed is expected to do three to maybe six rate cuts later this year. You can hear the howling from political opponents of the Biden administration who say that's that's political in an election year to do that. But the Fed doesn't have any choice, right? They have to do what they think they have to do, right, Jimmy? Yeah, I mean, and they're going to come in, I mean, you mentioned a tremendous amount of criticism. I mean, that might be like, you know, you know, obviously, the, are we going to have a soft landing? That's number one issue. Number two. Remember the, the criticism. Remember that criticism yes. during the Obama administration? You know, the Chicago boys are cooking the numbers and like, all that kind of stuff. <laughs> the independence of the Fed. Yeah. There is going to be attack. I mean, you'd like to think like they don't care that they're insulated. They're just going to look at the numbers and do what they think best. But. I'm concerned that they might not do everything they want to do because there is going to be a torrent of criticism that they're trying to juice the economy and juice the market for President Biden. Senator, you've been, uh, like I said, you've been on the ballot, you've run campaigns. Is the Biden campaign, administration and campaign maybe, handling this the right way? Are they, are they messaging this the right way? Or are they falling short in terms of explaining all this to voters as best they can? I think the mistake that the Biden campaign is making is telling everybody, smile, it's great, look what the great job. We're, we're even going to label it Bidenomics. Guess what? People don't feel like the economy is good, and it doesn't matter what those macro numbers are. You've got to look at, as my friend Barbara Mikulski used to say, the macaroni and cheese numbers, not just the macro, yeah. ma uh, macro numbers. And I think they haven't paid enough attention to the macaroni and cheese issues and haven't really gotten out there to explain their plan on how to make families prosperous again. So assume there's nothing that they can do about the mac and cheese number between now and November, right? How do you message the mac and cheese between now and November? I think you've got to start by talking about where we came from after the pandemic, be honest about it. But also, I think people just want to be heard and they want to know that people hear their complaint. They know what they're talking about when they say, I can't make ends meet. And Brian always raises uh, the insurance costs. Those yeah. are also adding to this. And so... Let's take a look at all the things that you can control and then tell people you're working on those things that will make the economy better and hopefully uh, job uh, uh, wages higher and will offer an opportunity to actually have, uh, you know, the American dream. Well, we are going to hear a lot more about all this this year. Senator, thank you. Jimmy P., thank you here in the studio. Really appreciate both of your time tonight. Coming up here on Netflix uh, may have a big pivot in the works. Will the rest of big tech have to follow them. We'll hear from top tech analyst Dan Ives. That's coming up next. Netflix may soon be leveling up its video game business. According to the Wall Street Journal, the streaming giant is considering ways to make money from its mobile games. Right now, Netflix subscribers can uh, play Netflix games for free. So how does the company plan to make money off of gaming? Well, the journal reports that Netflix executives have discussed adding ads and in-app purchases 
The report comes as shares of Netflix have surged more than 50% over the past year. So is it game on for the stock if Netflix starts cashing in on its games? Let's ask one of the most popular tech analysts on the street, Wedbush Securities Managing Director, Dan Ives. Dan, thank you for being here. The video game industry, it's much bigger than Hollywood, bigger than movies and music combined even. So getting a toe in makes a lot of sense to me, but is Netflix making the right play here for you? I think it's the right poker move, and I think this could be something, it's an arms race that we're seeing in big tech. You look at Microsoft Activision, you look what's happened in Apple. Netflix, they're in a massive position of strength. They've experimented. This could be the year. I think this is really the start of a new frontier on the video game side for Netflix, but also for big tech. Right now, though, you're just talking about Netflix games, right? Some not maybe many of the big name games we're all familiar with. I'm an Assassin's Creed guy. I like to play that on the Xbox with my kids. Uh, very therapeutic on a Friday night to go raiding villages and all that. Uh, you can't do that on Netflix, or at least yet, right? So at some point, the potential is to bring in some of these huge blockbuster games uh, into the net Netflix ecosystem if the video game makers and the console makers allow Netflix to get its uh, nose under the tent here. I think look, you just nailed it because I think you're going to start to see some potential marriages here. I think more consolidation. You can see from a content perspective on the gaming side, I think everyone's been waiting for more and more acquisitions. And I continue to focus. That Microsoft Activision is just the start, tip of the iceberg. You're looking yeah. at big tech. This is a flex the muscles moment. Companies like Netflix, they're in a massive position of strength going to 24 and beyond. And I think this is just another move where they play chess, other play checkers. So, so game it out for me. Who, who are the big consolidators if you had to bet? If you're looking at, you know, who are the big players who are going to go down the aisle this year? Yeah, clearly top of the mound in terms of where Netflix is. I think you, you could see content acquisition on video game side from Apple. I think you could also yeah. see more from Microsoft from a publisher perspective. And, and then you even expand it out in terms of, you know, you look at what's happening at Google, you look at Meta. Uh, th this is one. I think every big tech player is going to look at this, including Amazon. No one wants to be on the outside looking in. Yeah. So looking ahead to next week, CES is kicking off in Vegas, one of the biggest tech events in the world. I saw you earlier today. You're tweeting some expectations that you have for maybe some big announcements coming next week. What are they? Yeah, and we'll be there. And, and I think this is, you know, a lot of times in the past have been more fringe technologies it's all about AI. I mean, this is really what I view as the biggest technology transformation in 30 years. It's going to be front and center. I expect some big announcements from the godfather of AI, NVIDIA. You have Lisa Sue and AMD. Software and chips are going to lead this. And I think this is really showing. This is not hype. This is, I think, going to be a technology that transforms the way many consumers and enterprises live. Yeah, I mean, if you're looking at AI and then you talk about video games, I mean, there's a marriage right there. I mean, that could be fascinating. Well, Eamon, I think what you're going to see is this is the start of more and more marriages. Software, hardware, chips. You look at content. We're talking about a trillion-dollar opportunity over the next decade. It's just starting. But CES, this is the real deal. That's why I think more and more in the industry globally are going to this than they probably had any CES in the last 10 years. All right, Dan, have a great trip to you Vegas too. next week. Thank you. Stay out of the casinos, though. You can lose money there. Thanks a lot for your time. Appreciate it. Coming up here, riding high onto Wall Street, how Nikki Haley is getting some of business's biggest names in her corner as the presidential primaries kick off. Stay with us.
and welcome back. As we sit here tonight, we are just 10 days out from the Iowa caucuses, and Nikki Haley is announcing a big fundraising milestone. The former U.N. ambassador and South Carolina governor says she brought in $24 million during the fourth quarter of 2023. That's more than double any previous period. Haley is set to kick off a major fundraising blitz at the end of this month, holding events in New York City, followed by Silicon Valley. Some of Wall Street's biggest players are set to attend one of her fundraisers in New York, including Stan Druckenmiller, Henry Kravis, and Cliff Asnes. But can Wall Street's influence help turn the race around for Nikki Haley? According to the latest CBS News and YouGov poll in Iowa, former President Trump holds a massive lead at 58%. And in New Hampshire, latest polling there from St. Anselm College finds Trump still in the lead, but Nikki Haley is down uh, by about 14 points there. That's a huge gap to make up. Joining me now, Puck News founding partner, Teddy Schleifer. Teddy, it seems to me that one, one of two things is going on here. Either these Wall Street zillionaires are just totally out of touch with the fact that Donald Trump is completely dominant in their party, or this is about propping up a candidate on the off chance there's some black swan type event in the Trump campaign, which is it? It could be both, actually. I mean, you look. Think? I mean, I mean, look. There is there is no doubt that the the gap between what you know Cliff Asnes thinks and what the average Republican base voter thinks has never been wider. Right. Enormous, I mean, like, right. I, I don't think Cliff is spending time at a uh, you know Iowa diners, you know, talking with uh, possible caucus goers about you know Donald Trump or Nikki Haley. But look, I mean, if this were 2016, you know, you and I remember every rich person, you know, who who was you know had half a brain was obsessed with Jeb Bush or Scott Walker. And, and it's kind of honestly funny a little bit to see people who are these masters of the universe who are so used to being in control feel yeah. so impotent and irrelevant. And that's why when I see someone like, someone like you know, Cliff or, or Sandra Miller, you know, sponsoring one of these events, it makes you wonder, like, does any of this even matter? Is this just incredibly naive and just out of touch nostalgia for a party that doesn't exist anymore? Yeah. I mean, it, it could be that, it sounds like. Uh, or is this an incredibly savvy bank shot play, you know, waiting for something to maybe happen and then they can move their candidate ahead of the line uh, against some of these others that they don't like as much? I mean, these guys are not used to placing massive bets financially and losing money. But the flip side of that is this isn't that much money for them. Yeah. I mean, you know, I've covered the donor world for like a decade now. And, yeah. I, and I have never seen in a situation before where people are donating money with the expectation that they're going to lose it. Right. Um, like typically, you know, you're kind of hiring your own supply. You donate five million dollars because you really believe that our guy's going. Jeb Bush is next president of the United States, and I'm going to be the next, you know, ambassador to France. Uh, in this situation, when I talk with people privately, like they see it as they will see it as something as a suicide mission, or maybe 15 percent chance, 20 percent chance. You know, I do think the fortune. So they're just so rich, they're lighting the money on fire because they want to. It makes them feel better. I think I think they feel like they're you know doing their patriotic duty to some extent. I do think though the, the situation, and they don't like not being in. Your your point was they don't like not being in control. Right, right? and you want to be relevant. You want to feel like you're at least trying. I do feel like the situation has changed a little bit over the last month. Where when I talked with donors in November and December, um, you know, there there was the denialism or, or pessimism about whether or not they can do anything to prevent Trump from being the nominee. Was it overdrive? Yeah. Now, if you squint, right, and, and I'm not saying this is likely, but I'm saying if you really, really squint, you could see a scenario where maybe Nikki Haley gets 35% in New Hampshire and it's 
changes the dynamics of the race, changes the media conversation, and then you get a one-on-one race, and then you never know what happened. Like, obviously, we're— You, you never know. And, we're into and make-believe land. We, but, yeah, we yeah. read those polls, but, you know, bear in mind, polls are a snapshot. They don't tell us where things are going to go. Anything could happen, sure. as we've seen in the past. Anything does happen, often the exact opposite of what we expect. But in this case, I think the $64,000 question is, mm-hmm. all right, fast forward through the primaries, Trump gets the nomination on the Republican side, you know, walking away with it, huge acclamation. Uh, at that point, these same donors are going to be looking at a stark choice, right? Do they go Trump or do they, you know, swallow hard and go Biden or do they stay home? Yeah. And I, and what I, do you think? I, I think the, 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 look, the, 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 a huge story of this, the general election is going to be third party candidates. Like, I mean, I know wealthy people who, who in that situation would choose RFK as crazy as it may sound, or people who might choose a no labels ticket. Yeah. Um, you know, I think that that, um, the, that the ben- gives them a safe harbor. I can't, I can't do Biden because of age or taxes or something. Sure. I can't do Trump because of January 6th, maybe. I'll do, you know, candidate X. You talk with Trump people, though, and, and they would say, like, we saw this movie in 2016 and that uh, wealthy people on Wall Street or Silicon Valley will basically, you know, you know eat egg and, and, and take the egg on their face and vote and get involved with Trump. I mean, obviously, he delivered a lot for the, you know, for yep. the conservatives on the economy. And, you know, they want to have access and he's going to be the next president of the United States, maybe. And you want to be on the team. More tax cuts is a good thing. You want to be relevant is the, is the, the word of kind of, the, you know, the, yeah. the, the parlance of major The question is whether you'll see all those guys on bended knee before Trump before the end of the year. I think, I think it happens if Trump is the nominee that most of the people on the Nikki Haley fundraiser invitation will be supporting Donald Trump. I would say 75% of those people will eventually get involved. All right, we'll have you back before the end of the year. We'll see if that holds true. Teddy, thank you so much. Thank you. Fascinating stuff. Really appreciate your time. Coming up here, an international playboy, billions of dollars, Goldman Sachs, Leonardo DiCaprio, and the Wolf of Wall Street. It's a story of financial fraud. It's almost too crazy to believe, but it is the subject of a must-see true crime doc just out now on Netflix. Its director is going to join us here next. You don't want to miss it. Welcome back. It's a story that reads like a modern-day version of Catch Me If You Can, one man's lavish lifestyle involving A-list celebrities and institutions like Goldman Sachs and a whole lot of money just gone. We're talking about one of the world's most wanted fugitives, Joe Lowe. He's a Malaysian businessman, allegedly behind the theft of more than $4.5 billion from that country's sovereign wealth fund. Lowe's story is the focus of a new Netflix true crime documentary. It's out today. It's called Man on the Run. It's perversely poetic that some of the billions of dollars stolen from the government of Malaysia was used to fund the movie The Wolf of Wall Street, which is a a movie about greed, about excess, and about how money can, at least for a time, make somebody seem invincible. Oh, so ironic. Let's bring in Cassius Michael Kim, the director, writer, and executive producer behind that documentary. Cassius, thanks for joining us tonight. I love a good con man story, and this one really delivers. And you framed this question early on. Was Joe Lowe a brilliant thief, or was he just a crazy guy? What's your take? Uh, I think the truth lies somewhere in the middle. Um, There's a nihilism to the strategy of Joe Lowe and his co-conspirators, uh, with the way they carried out the fraud for many years without having any thought to sustainability or an exit strategy 
but the fact that he was able to pull it off, I mean, there is a lot of chutzpah involved, I think, more than yeah, anything. right. Yeah, I mean, when you look at these con men, I'm always fascinated by two questions, right? One is, where do these guys come from? And then how do they pull it off? Because it's never done alone, right? So answer those two questions. Where did Joe Lowe come from? How did he even get into this world of global high finance to the point where he was able to allegedly steal all that money? Well, you know, Joe Lowe's a Chinese Malay citizen, but he attended school in Europe at the Harrow School in England where... They advertise that they've educated seven prime ministers of England, and he later attended University of Pennsylvania Wharton School of Business, which uh, so he was super posh. <laughs> but I think he figured out very early on in life just the value of relationships, uh, especially being surrounded by the kind of people that go to Harrow and UPenn. Um, yeah. You know, the kids and of Middle Eastern royalty or very wealthy businessmen, uh, and you figure out that those connections are what can get you far. And he was able to persuade the then prime minister of Malaysia, Najib Razak, through his relationship with the prime minister's stepson, Riz Aziz, who he met in London. Yeah. So, I mean, that, those relationships lead me to the next question, which is that these these alleged con men are often, you know, in cahoots with a whole cabal of advisors, lawyers, bankers and other people who are professionals, who are highly educated themselves and who should know or should have the ability to figure out what's going on is a fraud and somehow manage not to while raking in all these profits. Is that what happened here? I think it's more about willful blindness, uh, especially with 1MDB. There are a legion of middlemen who benefited and were paid money that was stolen from Malaysian taxpayers who all turned a blind eye. And, you know, the journalist Claire Rucastle-Brown puts it best in our film. Um, you know, they act like they can turn a blind eye and profit from this corruption as society degrades from the results of this. Uh, but it's just the way the world works, isn't it? Um. <laughs> yeah. And so ironic that money from an alleged billion-dollar financial fraudster was used to finance the Wolf of Wall Street about billion-dollar financial fraud. I mean, that just, like, is staggering to me, that the chances of that happening. I, I want to know if you think that the filmmakers or Leonardo DiCaprio had any idea that that's where that money was coming from, or were they just happy to get a check from some guy they saw as a rich guy from overseas? Uh, I highly doubt that they had any idea of the source of the money, of course— <laughs> DiCaprio's relationship with Jolo predates the making of The Wolf of Wall Street. And I think we can all kind of decide for ourselves whether he should have known that a gentleman paying him $250,000 a night to just hang out and have dinner with him, uh, where that money was coming from. But regardless yeah. of that, Jolo himself was actively telling people that the money for The Wolf of Wall Street was coming from the Middle East. And of course, as a filmmaker myself, I know how difficult so it is to project so that's So that's believable. He is still on the run. Good luck with the documentary. Really appreciate you. your time tonight. And coming up here, do you know what happened 91 years ago today? Construction began on one of the most iconic American landmarks, the Golden Gate Bridge. San Francisco's great Golden Gate Bridge takes on a more substantial appearance as an army blimp surveys the work which has now reached the cable spinning stage. Here's a video of the construction back in 1935, back when they really knew how to build things in this country. It took more than four years to complete. The project cost $33 million at the time. That's about $800 million in today's money. At one point, both the longest and the tallest suspension bridge in the world. Fast forward to today, about 40 million cars cross the Golden Gate Bridge 
every year, but it's not the busiest bridge in the world. That title is held by the George Washington Bridge, connecting New York City with New Jersey and Englewood Cliffs, where CNBC is, with more than 100 million crossings every year. That is your last call for tonight from Washington, D.C. Brian returns on Monday, and now it's time for your weekend. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. 